0: yeah so today i'm talking about f- food and okay. and like cooking sort of building off of we talked about agriculture in north america in the last episode that i was sort of doing the rundown on mm-hmm. now we're going to talk about what happened to said f- food what did they what they do with it yeah, yeah hello and welcome to the baba yaga project hi i'm margo and i'm sonia And we're historians interested in making cultural history and folklore accessible. We've made the Baba Yaga Project, which is a podcast, a YouTube channel, and a website to build a community and learn from the past together. We hope you join us for all of season three and subscribe to get notified every time we post. Yeah, I guess we're talking about like food culture in North America and then the impacts of slavery on developing like what the modern food culture is so and this
1: is in the u.s mostly yes okay cool so this is about american cuisine and american food culture yes cool yeah
0: so i'm going to be talking about sort of two major systems and even that's going to be kind of a kind of reductive Mm -hmm. but um yeah it's not going to get into new france so much or anything that's happening in kind of like Upper Canada.
1: Okay, so this is definitely the U.S., not just yes. English North America. But
0: no, yeah. no, no, no. It's gonna. This is gonna be pr- pretty much e- East Coast colonial yeah. antebellum,
1: seventeenth, eighteenth, early nineteenth century.
0: Yeah, U.S. Okay, cool. Just for, and what were the two themes that you wanted to practical purposes? The theme? Yeah,
1: you said you were had like two. Oh, thrusts. so
0: there's there's well because there's sort of two systems. So okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, we've talked about the like food culture that existed in early contact or pre contact North America.
1: Absolutely.
0: The native plants and the impact of colonialism. Like, we've talked about that before. So, we've talked about like the three sisters agriculture that comes sort of out of Central America and works its way up the coast to the Iroquois. And then we've talked about how plantation and the enslavement system, chattel slavery in North America sort of developed. And even in the the agriculture one, I talked about how um, one of the major crops that comes out of the plantation system is a food crop, so that's rice. Some of the other ones weren't food crops, tobacco and yeah. cotton were for other things, but a lot of it is for food. And if you get into the Caribbean, that's or s- southern Georgia, um, northern Florida, and even part of the coast of South Carolina, that's all sugar. Yeah.
1: And Louisiana, a lot of sugar, too.
0: Louisiana's a lot of sugar, too, yeah. yeah. Um, they have a slightly different system, though, because... Okay. Uh,
1: because the French and Spanish legacy. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So,
0: like, their racial caste system is a bit more complicated than yeah. what is developed in English North America. Yeah, it's very, more complicated. Very yes, and that's
1: particular. what we're talking about today. Particular. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: Um, I mean, we can touch on it because, like, w- as this system is developing, right, race isn't really a Faced. thing. Yeah. And there's this incredible tension in the 17th century as slavery is being introduced because before like African descendants slaves were brought to North America like proper like the continent mm-hmm. most of the people who are working the farmland in English North America so mainly Virginia at yeah. this point um, were indentured servants and part of the reason that you don't have those people becoming enslaved in the way that African descendant people end up being enslaved in North America is because there is a history of essentially labor negotiations happening yeah. in England. Those yeah. people have already had centuries of negotiating those contracts and what, how those they're understood. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. So there's this weird idea that like, oh, well, the, indentured servants or the Irish or Welsh or whoever was brought over, like wouldn't be enslaved because they looked white and it's like that's not real because they had been <laughs> yeah all of these and people and importantly
1: indenture is not slavery yes right like that that's also and an important distinction to make here because there's also a weird idea that indentured servants were white slaves yeah and that's not true either
0: yeah yeah um though their access to freedom in north america was not what it would have been it,
1: in england it's a deeply abusive labor yeah. system and, right
0: and yeah. normally they were like their freedom was withheld. So they would fulfill their contracts and they wouldn't be given their land or their freedom payment. Um, Or they would.
1: Contracts could be sold in the same way that slaves could be sold. Like there's similarities, but it's not the same
0: for most people because the infrastructure in the, in North America at this time, in the US, in North America at this time wasn't what could really support people living in these conditions. Most of them died before their indenture was out, which was why, like, they, the owning classes couldn't then turn around and be like, well, we're just going to enslave all of you people because they needed the immigrants coming as indentured servants to work the land. So they couldn't just be like, oh, well, you and all of your progeny are going to be slaves now because then people would stop coming from yeah. Europe and they needed them. When you don't have those relationships already established and you don't have the need for a like willing yeah. immigrant population to come over, you can just be like, no, you're going to be enslaved and yeah. everybody who comes after you is going to be enslaved forever. That's a thing that can be developed, and so they they build that into the legal code. One of the interesting things about like developing the legal code of slavery is that, or of American chattel slavery, is that those laws come about of who counts as a slave, how you inherit a slave status before there's any discussion about like biological racism of any yeah. kind. Yeah, yeah. So like the racism is constructed to make the laws make sense. Yeah so, right, you get into this issue of originally people were going to inherit slavery through their father because all of like the English conceptions of family line and genealogy goes through paternity. Um, But that didn't work because you can't necessarily prove who was fathered by an enslaved man or a freed man or whatever. Um, But you know for a fact where... A woman's child comes from (laughs) um so they were like okay well whatever we this is this is the easiest way to trace it we're going to make every enslaved woman's child and a a slave essentially and that's how you get this like one drop rule essentially is because then you can rape your slaves yeah and
1: yeah racism I think this fall we might have to do a patreon episode with my partner hannah yep. because she studies judaism in the atlantic world in this period mm-hmm. and one of the super interesting things is jewish slaveholders in the dutch areas of south america who right. then yeah um, have children with their slaves And then invite their slaves in for Passover dinner because it's one of the first instances in Jewish history Mm -hmm. where there's sort of a mass acceptance of patrilineally descended Mm -hmm. Jews, right? Because these children between these Jewish men and these African women are accepted as Jewish. And normally under Jewish law, right? Yeah. That's not something that...
0: That's fascinating. That you do,
1: It's super interesting. And, and then, of course, you know, for Passover, right, this celebration of the freedom of Jewish mm-hmm. slaves, and then you bring your enslaved people into like celebrate it, or maybe, maybe more pointedly, sometimes we're excluded, right?
0: Interesting. I think that's like a. I think so. I think that that idea is a really neat way to transition back to food from yeah, the yeah, racism, yeah, yeah. because what I want to talk about here is right this the way that the food culture develops because of this system, right? So you have one class of people that is essentially growing and producing all of the food and then preparing all of the food for another Mm -hmm. class of people. And those that class is enforced through racial caste systems. Yeah. And what and the, the food that ends up being prepared is this amalgamation of skill sets from mostly Western Africa, Mm -hmm. though in some cases, like in New York, there's a particular influx of enslaved population from Madagascar. Mm -hmm. But they're cooking with New World plants and for Europeans. So normally they're, they're recreating the food of wherever yeah. the enslavers came from. But we also like the, the differences in how food culture is maintained and developed really depends on the system of enslavement. And all of this is going to be very different from what's happening in indigenous societies with food. Cause this would be the period that we've talked about before where essentially we're getting into the period when the colonial systems and uh, the early us government is holding indigenous nations hostage Mm -hmm. for food um we talked about that i think in the agricultural episode um so that is what's happening there but here we're developing sort of this whole other system of of preparation for food so the thing that i think most people would be familiar with because it's the the narrative of slavery that we get for North America is the plantation South. Mm-hmm. And that is really the most extreme version of the peculiar institution of American mm-hmm. chattel slavery, right? It, when we think about slavery in North America, it is the like massive plantations of the South, these huge systems of like one in one enslaver. You know, or or a family that is over hundreds of people who are operating essentially what is, you know, a small nation unto itself. Yeah.
1: And also owns a large tract of land. Yeah. So it's it's, it's it's a huge tract of land. um, Industrialized slavery. Yeah. Yeah, Producing cash crops like tobacco, cotton, rice.
0: Rice. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And so like in that you have a, a few things that are that are happening there. One is a lot of people from Western Africa or the Caribbean living together in community in these conditions, but like all sort of like in the same place. And it's a a large, a large population able to interact and supporting themselves within that system. Right. So you have what would be going on in terms of like feeding a plantation is it's so fucked up um so you have like right the cash crops yeah. then you have the gardens that are also maintained by slaves that feed the household yeah and or are part of what is sold or traded to get other commodities yeah. for the household Locally. and then you have like the quarters for the enslaved people and they have to maintain whatever their food is going to be along with some portion of whatever cash crop it is that they're growing that would be provided as like, you know, base sustenance. So like if you have, if you're on a rice plantation, you would get a certain amount of rice, but like you're probably not going to get wheat or anything unless you grow something that you then sell. Cause there's that, that level of like Ability to leave a plantation because the system is so ingrained that walking off the plantation is not necessarily a threat of escaping enslavement. So you could go into town or somebody who represents that community can go into town and get something. But you're going to have to purchase it with whatever comes from what you've grown. So they're growing their own food and making their own food. And so you have food cultures developing within those environments that are... Amalgamations of Western African cuisines, Afro-Caribbean cuisines with North American crops, things that will grow easily in North America or crops that are brought from from those locations and bred with North American crops. So like you have these yam sweet potato crossovers or watermelon is from Northern Africa and that becomes a big sort of staple food. Cause it's really hydrating.
1: yeah.
0: Um, and.
1: And grows like.
0: Yeah. I mean. It's super easy to it's grow. It's super easy to grow. Yeah. But like, there's a lot of these sorts of, of foods that are. Become like commodities in these, this new cuisine that comes okay. out of this, like amalgamation of cooking techniques. Mm-hmm. And you have that in the South. And then you also have. What is particular to the plantation system is a, distinct division of labor so within the plantation system you have a division of skilled labor so certain people and certain parts of the plantations are doing certain jobs Mm -hmm. and they're not necessarily just sort of like moving around doing a bunch of different things you have Mm -hmm. cooks and Mm -hmm. you have gardeners and you have like field hands and you Mm -hmm. have domestic servants Mm -hmm. and those jobs don't normally overlap and you have those the this this sort of same system of producing the food going into making food for the owning class so for the enslavers mm-hmm. you have enslaved people growing and preparing the food and that's where you get this new sort of north american cuisine and so one of the the best examples of this is james hemmings okay who might recognize the last name, Sally Heming's brother.
1: Oh, cool. Yeah. Um,
0: so there's this idea that a lot of American cuisine was like invented by Thomas Jefferson. Like, no, there isn't. Yes, there is a macaroni really? and cheese and really? a lot of other shit that, yeah, it's supposed to be like, this is like along with wheelie desk chair and like all sorts of weird stuff that are like oh thomas jefferson invented thomas this jefferson didn't invent anything so like macaroni and cheese in this american cuisine sorry
1: is this something that like americans
0: believe no it's like part of culinary history like the, the ma- that's where macaroni and cheese comes from is that yes but it's not thomas jefferson it's, it's james yeah, yeah, yeah um yeah macaroni and
1: cheese is
0: it is a, it is an American thing.
1: Well, I, I know it's an American thing. Yeah. But like and it industrialized is like we were, pasta production was, went back that far.
0: It's not industrialized. Right. Like he's, they're making the, the making pasta. The yeah. Interesting. So, and the reason that you're, he's able to create all of these things that are then seen as like this amazing yeah, yeah, culinary, yeah. whatever, is that. Um,
1: mac and cheese, the height of, uh, (laughs) sybaritic luxury. (laughs) Think about it. Think about in the 18th century, though. Yeah. yeah.
0: To just be eating pasta and milk and cheese and like whatever vegetables you might put in it. And that it's like, especially if you get the, like a baked macaroni that they normally make in Virginia, where it's, it's whipped with eggs and very like fluffy. Anyway, James Hemming was an incredibly well educated, and skilled chef right and that's how Mm -hmm. a lot of these head chefs on plantations operated and they are the really the heart and innovators of american cuisine because that's what ends up going into early cookbooks in north america and being filtered down to like like white cooks who are like laborers in the north and or then you know like poor or middle-class women who are working their own kitchens. And what's going on with James Hemings as an example, right, is he has to be able to run a kitchen. So he needs to be literate Mm -hmm. so he can read, he can write. And this specific period of the late 18th century, the U S and France are just like best buds. And a lot of the, colonial elite is spending a lot of time in france mm-hmm. and james hemmings went to france um and while technically he was free
1: mm-hmm.
0: when he got to france because it was illegal to enslave people in france at this period in terms of his like actual ability to seek that freedom right yeah. his entire family his sister his Absolutely. nieces and nephews and yeah. everyone were still on plantation in monticello so he, he stays with Thomas Jefferson and Thomas Jefferson is like, this is a great opportunity to get my chef to learn a bunch of French cuisine. And he yeah. sends him to French culinary schools and he, James Hemmings learns French at yeah. these schools and he learns all of this like French culinary techniques and then comes back and again is working with the food that the enslaved people of Monticello are growing yep. for his kitchens yeah. and teaching the people there. And there's a whole list of other enslaved people whose enslavers get the credit for developing American cuisine and are just sort of now becoming well known as like the actual innovators. Yeah. Um, but that is a that is a a specific thing that is at the heart of what we think of as like Southern soul food. Right. Right
1: course
0: is that it's these complicated european culinary techniques with being sort of merged with
1: african culinary
0: african culinary techniques afro-caribbean culinary techniques and north american staple foods
1: right and and you keep saying afro-caribbean and just to clarify that's because Slaves moved between the Caribbean and the Southern United States quite a bit.
0: Yeah, well, yeah. So, yeah. the history of 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 slavery starts in the Caribbean, Caribbean. and so yeah. you have generations of people who are taken from Western Africa, yeah, yeah. moved to the Caribbean, and they live there for generations, yeah. and have a whole other plantation system, yeah. and are then in the si- in like sixteen nineteen when you have like yeah. the first slaves who are brought to America. North America. The continent they're coming not from a culture of you know Congo yeah, yeah, yeah. or wherever yeah. um, they're coming from Jamaica, Barbados, right. yeah Cuba, yeah Cuba. Yeah. So it's a, it's a different culture that's already an amalgamation of you know West African coastal communities um, and European cultural things. A lot of Portuguese. Plantations, uh, right. so like, there's a, there's a lot of like. In Brazil. In, uh, the Caribbean as well. So the, the, a lot of the people who are moving, who are the actual, yeah, yeah. Ins- like, people transporting slaves are Portuguese, and then oh, they're right. going yes, to, yeah, yes, yeah yes, and then they're yes. going to, so no. yeah, like, yeah. names and language end up being very, like, yeah. Portuguese, yeah. uh, it's all, like, patois. So that's what's happening in the Caribbean. So it's, I, uh, for the purposes of simplifying things mm-hmm. when we're talking about this here, is there's like all of those cultures on the coast of Africa that are being brought over. And then another
1: distinct cultural, distinct yeah, cultural yeah, yeah.
0: moment that's coming from the Caribbean. Yeah. And then, you know, multiple generations of people who are in North America yeah. already. And yeah. all of this is constantly being sort of renegotiated yeah. on the plantation. Yeah. So that whole culture and then you have you know anything that's coming out of the like Appalachia Mm -hmm. um and like the working class white communities especially because that's gonna be later well so this is this is it gets really this is
1: not 17th century
0: in in the beginning beginning of that period it, it is really complicated and this is part of why the racial caste system develops the way that it does is because indentured workers and enslaved Africans didn't because there wasn't a racial caste system in the 17th yeah, century yeah. didn't see themselves as being distinct in their oppressions right? and there was a like multi-racial revolt that happens like one of the largest slave and servant revolts um that happened in 1660 something like that somewhere around there i can't remember exactly mm-hmm. um but part of what happens is that they have the owning classes have to create this this culture of racism in order to keep that
1: the servant slave solidarity yeah, yeah keep right at back. bay and yeah. so
0: you do have like cultural exchange between yeah those communities and then especially as you get into as you get later into more like right before like late antebellum and postbellum where you have like maroon populations moving out into the Appalachians and then recently freed populations moving into the Appalachians you have more of that um like cultural exchange Mm -hmm. between
1: but to be clear we're not talking about so We're talking about processes that start in the early 17th century, Mm -hmm. the early 1600s, first slaves come into America in 1619, famously. Yes. Um, And at that point, there's already an established slave culture and Afro-Caribbean culture in the Caribbean. Yes. But there isn't an Appalachia. The Appalachian settlement comes later, right? And so what... What we're clarifying here is that this is an ongoing process Yes, as new parts of North America are colonized. Yes. Uh, there's new cultural interactions that yes. happen there between indigenous people, African people, European people, yes. and they're coming from multiple different places to do that.
0: And also as, as the colonial power yeah. of these governments grow and as the plantation systems grow, There is a constant renegotiation of all of these cultures again Mm -hmm. and how, where those boundaries are, how much like communication and, and like, like influence happens between them, right? Mm -hmm. So in like late antebellum South, you're not going to have as much cultural communication between enslaved people uh and so, like in the the 1840s, 1850s, 1850s. Yeah. you're not going to have a lot of communication between enslaved people and working class white right. people, right? Because you already have a developed racial yes, system, yes, right? and it's it's sh- strict yeah. at that point in time, yeah. and you're like people f- firmly believe in it, yeah. right? So that's. That is going to like be continually negotiated. All of these things that are like culturally developed or are, are constantly being negotiated. So that's what's sort of going on in the South. And that's where we get these, you know, the, the idea of like the, the soul food of the South or Southern foods yeah. like macaroni and cheese or, yeah. you know, fried chicken or
1: sweet potatoes,
0: sweet potatoes yeah. collard greens yeah. all of these things are things that are native to North America and like very easy to grow mm-hmm. in the south which is mm-hmm. a great place for the cash crops that were being grown but doesn't necessarily have like actually the greatest soil no. it's it's not great so it's it's hard to grow a lot of food that grow a lot of food yeah. essentially like yeah. it's it's especially like nutritious food. So collard greens can essentially be grown anywhere. Um, Sweet potatoes are potato, you know, watermelon is easy. It grows on the ground. It's good for um, in polycultures has the big broad leaves, like any other squash or melon. So these are all things that like are now central to what we think of as like Southern foods, but that comes out of, these incredibly complicated systems of people providing for themselves and also this like n- newly formed and unrecognized for centuries the culinary elite uh, but who are enslaved right. right? right so there's there's that and and then for for ease of discussion because we only have like another 20 minutes or whatever i'm going to just explain this as if there is a sharp contrast to the north when in reality there is like a whole lot of different systems of slavery across um what would it when we're talking about
1: colonies they all have their own legal systems right like yeah, yeah
0: yeah and the yeah and and they all have their own, like, European origins right. that affect how slavery starts in those places. Yeah. So when I'm talking about the North now, um, as a comparison to the plantation South, um, what I'm going to be talking about is sort of the system that develops in what comes from new Amsterdam. So that's, uh, New York, New Jersey, um, part of Delaware. Yeah. Yeah. So that sort of like Northern mid Atlantic, not down into Maryland or anything like that. Um, and they have, a a really, this is very distinct from what's happening in the South one, because it's not until much later that they are able to grow any sort of like real cash, crop com- any like commodity cash commodity plus. that they yeah. can like easily move to a port yeah. um because right you have the uh, port of new york which is huge and is a place where you can like start moving commodities from like europe or from the south north along the hudson river and up to canada but there's not the infrastructure for the agricultural lands that develop in western new york there's not an infrastructure to bring any of that over to the river and transport it anywhere um until industrialization right so new york isn't like going to have a lot of heavy agriculture outside of the hudson valley until the mid-19th century so what happens in new york and new jersey especially but like when we're talking about the north is it starts out with the Patrons in New Netherlands. Yeah. And then the Netherlands sort of like give up on their colonial endeavors in North There's America and the British, takeover. the British takeover. Yeah, yeah. But the the Dutch are the ones who introduced slavery to yeah. the area the, and the, they have a very com- like they have a very different especially because it's the 17th century and because of how all of this is working throughout sort of the colonial Netherlands there's a, a sort of weird line of rights that enslaved people have mm-hmm. that even in Virginia and stuff even in this period like you wouldn't have um, enslaved people could like vote in their colonial governments and right. like all of this stuff uh, they could like purchase things and own things in their own names yeah. um, all of these things that are definitely not part of not the, British, part colonial of the British colonial law yeah. and and are negated almost immediately once this land comes under control of the British.
1: And the Patron ship system is also like the semi-feudal system where yes. the farms are smaller than the plantations in the yes. south. So and, yeah, yeah, and
0: the Patron system, uh, it maps pretty easily and is an easy switch over to the British manor system yeah. that is what takes over in these areas. Yeah. So yeah, it's essentially a... a a feudal system which we've talked about in um previous episodes yeah, yeah. um where get to it. yeah yeah so we have
1: larger landholders, but then their yeah. land gets split into smaller farms yeah with yeah. tenant farmers with tenant farmers. so Who a majority one or two slaves but it's yes. not large slave populations exactly controlled by the landowners. yeah exactly.
0: yeah and that's going to be so so we we sort of want to get into this because that's going to be the major difference in right. what happens with the food culture yeah, yeah, yeah. here is that It is, it is a system of, so for example, in the Hudson Valley, we have the Phillipses. Mm -hmm. Um, they own a massive swath of land. What time period? They, so they, they, uh, (laughs) this is complicated. Uh, this would be throughout the late 17th century and through the 18th century that they are owning this manor. There's a big, like, legal crisis with the indigenous people uh, as to, like, whether or not they actually the Phillips not. fraudulently made land grants. <laughs> we can talk about that at some point in time. It's, sure. it's a pretty cool story. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so the Phillips own essentially from the, uh, from the eastern side of the river all the way to Connecticut. Right. Right. Of the Hudson River to Connecticut. And so, but they, they're they not working at like a plantation. They're not, they're living off of rents. Right. And so they have their little manor that is like self-sustaining and might grow some cash commodities that they ship down. Mostly they're merchants. And then they have all of this land that they divide up and rent to other farmers. Right who are growing you know maybe some cash commodities and then subsistence stuff yeah and those tenant farmers will then own some number of slaves yeah but it's on on average like two yeah so the the big distinction that we have there is that you don't have a community Mm -hmm. of enslaved people Mm -hmm. in the same way that you do in plantations yeah right there is sort of like (laughs)
1: because the slave population or the population in general is parceled out is yes and and there's like distinct distinctive
0: yeah um and and there's there is individually a more freedom of movement because it's a much smaller population of people generally and so everybody knows everyone else and they're like oh well i know where you're supposed to be so like you have people who are enslaved able to like travel large distances, but they're not on the day-to-day able to maintain languages or maintain their own food ways or grow their own food for themselves or anything like that. What you have is like on a, at a manor house, right? You would have the family, the owning family, Mm-hmm. And then uh, more than likely, it, like, if you only have, like, three, only, I hate using that word, if you have, like, three slaves, right, three people who are enslaved in this family, yeah. um, it would probably be two men, right, who work the land and do also, this is the other big distinction is that it's not div- divided skilled laborers, right? right? They're doing sort of everything. Yeah, yeah. Um, in the same way that the owning class who's working this land as well yeah, is doing everything. The doing tenant them. farmers are doing yeah. everything. Everyone's doing everything. Um, and then you might, if you're like a very well off, tenant, uh, farmer. tenant farmer, they might have also a female domestic right. slave who's not necessarily just working in the house, right? Yeah, 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 of course. Um, but is like assisting in whatever the wife of this family is doing so working gardens like subsistence gardens washing cleaning cooking all of those things but they're going to be cooking whatever the family is going to eat and so it's the the culture that is able to survive is one that is sort of built around the very few Times that people are able to gather in community. So that's at sometime around Christmas normally. And then also Pinkster, which is in the middle of summer. It's Pentecost. It's a Dutch holiday and it's a big festival essentially that like most of these tenant farmers would allow yeah. well they would and allow the slaves, slaves to observe, to yeah. observe. and yeah. so it was this essentially like a massive carnival that people would travel hmm. to and we have documentation of sort of what was observed to be happening at pinkster celebrations and a lot of that seems to go back to african traditions and a sort of cool. like mapping christianity onto yeah um like african spiritual tradition. beliefs yeah, yeah. yeah so you have that and you might have some food ways that are associated with pinkster that are able mm-hmm. to survive but for the most part i
1: know if there were any like do we have any examples no but mm-hmm. maybe, maybe yeah
0: possibly yeah. but because we don't have like we don't have a clear map of like where the food came from and what ha- yeah, so we course. we do know that like a, a majority of the people who were enslaved in this area originally came from from Portuguese traders, most likely from the Congo. Mm-hmm. Phillips was the example that I had for somebody who specifically went, imported a lot of slaves from Madagascar. Right. And so you have that sort of community there, but it is, it is like significantly divided up. And it, it's a very different way of navigating this racial caste system. And there's this idea in like popular culture that because people had, freedom of movement and because that it wasn't this plantation system and because they lived in a house with the people who were owning them and more than likely ate at the same table. We have a lot of records of people who traveled to the South, to the North and stayed at these like manor houses were like, why is this person eating at the table with us? There's this idea that I think culturally Americans like to cling to, especially Americans who have a family history in these northern regions yeah. like to cling to that it wasn't as like brutal yeah. as the south, and that's just explicitly not true. Yeah. Like it's it's still. Slavery. Yeah. And it's still, are still property. Yeah. yeah. And there's, they still don't have control oh. over what or how much they're eating. They don't have control over where they are staying. And the family is going to still provide as little as possible to maintain them as a labor force yeah. rather than support them as people. Yeah. So I just like that is part of what I want to make clear. But one of the things then that comes out of both of these systems after the American Civil War mm-hmm. then is continuing to manage that racial caste system through a uh, system of domestic servitude. Mm-hmm. We have we continue to have a culture for almost a century after the American Civil War of the people who are descended from slaves, right? Yeah. African descendant people um serving as domestic cooks and right. still continuing to well
1: that's still
0: happening yeah exactly it's still like, it's still yeah, part, a major yeah. part of our culture but like in terms of like the the uh, especially in the south how common that was right up through mm-hmm. the 60s i mean it's it's yeah no it's, the caretaker just, you know yeah, like yeah, yeah. the help yeah yeah so like that's that's one of the things that then um especially with jim crow and its corollaries in the north the ways that culturally this the system of racism is enforced um, is done through domestic work again and again and through like things like the preparation of food and so when we think about there's an example that i i have personally in my family not in my family but like well, sort of. So my my mom makes this thing for Thanksgiving every year, mm. and uh, it's sweet potato casserole yeah. with um, candied pecans on it. Sure, sure, yeah. And it's it comes from the the recipe that we use comes from a, a church cookbook,
1: mm-hmm.
0: which are super common. Do you guys do that up here?
1: I mean, I. Yes. Okay. But, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So
0: church cookbooks, uh, we have like a bunch of them yeah. in my family that are just like passed around. So the the recipe that my mom has is, is one of the variations of the Senator Russell sweet potato recipe.
1: Yeah, so which named after him. But yes, he yes, named not, after
0: uh, named after him. And and if you know anything about Senator Richard Russell, he's uh he was a s- senator from Georgia, ardent segregationist. Love it. Awful person. Good. Delicious sweet potatoes. Yeah. Because he it and and they're called they're it's referred to as this all across the South. Sure. Yeah. But it, one, know for a fact that man never cooked anything. No. And also know for a fact that he had um a black maid who mm. and he had from the time that he was born was essentially raised by black Black women women. and fed by black women. And that's who made these foods. And it's like this deeply sentimental part of my food culture. Mm -hmm. And I'm just a random white lady. So like, you know, it's, this is where our, our food culture as like Americans. And when you think about like the food culture that, is american and Mm -hmm. and i think even parts of canada like that's where our food culture comes from is from this like system of both like system of oppression and also like on on one side i think of it that way and also of resilience though Mm. right because you're able to maintain and build something new and i think it's one of the ways that especially in the south where we are really trying to reconcile with the history of violence. Meeting at a table is a way to. I
1: mean, in all all cultures, right? Yeah, breaking bread with people bullets. like
0: a yeah, and seeing yeah. that like this is where this is the history that we that we share. Yeah, this um, is
1: already something that's been ongoing. Yeah,
0: yeah, um, and it's one of the ways that we can recognize. Because I think that the US culture specifically, we really don't want to say like, hey, our our culture and our history is one that is founded on racism right. and violence. Yeah. We want everything to be like celebratory yeah. and it, it can't be, we can't heal as a nation if we do that. But we can, I think that things like food can be one of those instances where it it can represent all of those things. It can represent the like well, pain I mean, I, I and stuff. And also be what's even sweet. More, well exactly. <laughs> I mean, I think
1: the point that you're you're making here is that what's even more complicated is that it's a nation founded on violence, but not just violence, right? Yeah. Like there's th- this whole system is leavened with um Things that aren't worthless. That yeah. sweet potato casserole, even if uh, fucking delicious, yeah, right. I'm <laughs> sure it is. I, I, I find the whole like American uh, sweet sweet potato thing kind of repulsive, <laughs> but I will let you have it. It's delicious. Um, but yeah, but the, that's that's what's complicated. Yeah, this right. We can't just abandon it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. I mean, I, I think this is all fascinating. This is all important. Yeah. Yeah. Really cool stuff. I'm also now really hungry. (laughs) Uh, Do you want a snack? Yeah, I do want a snack. Do you want to turn off the microphones and have a snack? Yeah, let's have a snack.
0: (laughs) Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. This project is made possible by our patrons. If you liked what you heard here, please check out our YouTube channel, our social media, and consider supporting us on Patreon. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.